This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Welcome to Question 26. This is a raw episode, which is a title we give to certain episodes, kind of even the meaning of which is evolving over time. But for better or for worse, this is the 26th episode, and it is a raw episode, and I'm calling it, Is Religion Inevitable? Let's waste no time, folks. Let's waste no time. Let's not waste any time. If we're wasting time, then we're committing some sort of travesty. We should just start that music and get to the punchline. Let's not say anything more. Let's just do it, do it, do it. Don't waste time, Dante. Stop talking. Go to the music. Go to the music. Now, now, now. Okay, sorry about that intro. So yeah, I think that this whole idea of doing raw episodes once in a while... When I did the first one, it was more of the idea of an episode that had more raw emotion attached to it. That wasn't well-researched and defined and it just was a momentary offering of my heart on a given feeling. And I think that's still the case here. But more to the point, I think it's now taking on the idea of raw episodes are ones that focus on broad ideas that aren't necessarily based in a specific passage, but are just kind of broad sweeping ideas that evoke feelings or doubt or certain responses from me. And that is certainly the case today. If you listen to my other show, Solve the World, which is a fictional podcast, and you should totally listen to it, please. It's really good. But but anyway, if you listen to that one, a couple episodes ago, a couple weeks ago, we had an episode that I reference the old Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten. And when I came up with the idea to insert this idea of Akhenaten into the story of Solve the World, or reference him in the storyline, I thought I should do a little more research on Akhenaten, make sure I had my ducks in a row before I just spewed my mouth about him in the fiction podcast. But when I did that, I came across the writings of a one Mr. Sigmund Freud, And it just so happened that his very last book he wrote before he passed off this mortal coil was a book that is translated as Moses and Monotheism. And the general premise, well, let me just start by saying that Freud, if you didn't already realize, was a renowned atheist his whole life. But unlike some of these new atheists on the scene, the Richard Dawkins, the Christopher Hitchens of the world now, At least, at the end of his life, Freud found some purpose in religion, or at least in Judaism, which he was Jewish, so that makes some sense. But he wrote this book, Moses and Monotheism, stating a conviction or a theory that Moses, for one, wasn't even Jewish, that he was actually Egyptian, and that he got the idea for monotheism from this Egyptian pharaoh, Akhenaten. And so Judaism is really this revived Atenism. Real quickly, Akhenaten was a pharaoh. His birth name, I believe, was Amenhotep IV. But when he became pharaoh, when he inherited the throne, he decided to push Egypt towards worshipping one particular god, the god of the solar disk, known as Aten. And then he changed his name to Akhenaten, like worshipper or servant of Aten. And so this was a lifelong push to make Egypt a monotheistic nation, worshipping one god. And it didn't work, at least as far as we know. It appears that as soon as he died, the next line of pharaohs whitewashed everything he did and put in place Ra and Horus and all the old gods back in the old realm of, you know, high seats of honor under Egyptian polytheistic mythology or religion or whatever you want to call it. Now, there's a lot of debate about when Moses and the Israelites 
lived in Egypt and when the Exodus chapter of life actually occurred in history. And different people, different scholars think that happened at different time periods under different pharaohs. Some historians still vow that it never actually even happened. There's not a strong historical record, as far as I know, in Egyptian manuscripts or Egyptian writings that, you know, talk about it. But I did today, this morning, read pretty convincing, you know, what do I know? I'm not a historian or scholar or archaeologist, so I don't know. So if you throw evidences at me, I'm going to swallow them up and eat them and engorge myself on that belief, especially if it's something that makes sense and goes along with what I already want to believe, right? That's what you have to do as a layperson. So anyway, I did read this theory that purports that the Exodus took place during the reign of this guy Thutmose, or Thutmosis Third, and that Moses' name, Moses, comes you know, from this Thutmosis, which, you know, right there, those those two names sound similar, so that's, that's nice. And if that were the case, Moses and the Exodus would have taken place like 70 years before Akhenaten takes the throne. And in that case, one could even make the case that Akhenaten is trying to steal the Judeo-God monotheistic religion, or at least, you know, ride on its coattails. But anyway, that wasn't the point Freud was making. Freud was saying that Judaism is built off of this Otanism, this Egyptian religion. And in some ways, that's a method of completely disregarding, you know, the truth of the Judeo-God, the Judeo-Christian God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. But apparently, Freud's point wasn't so much even in debunking God. It was about exploring this realm of religion as part of evolution. And I'd like to read from a New York Times article talking about Freud's book, and I'll have links to this New York Times article on our show notes page if you want to read the whole article. It's, it's a pretty good article. But here from the middle of this New York Times piece, I read, Freud argues that taking God into the mind enriches the individual immeasurably. The ability to believe in an internal, invisible God vastly improves people's capacity for abstraction. The prohibition against making an image of God, the compulsion to worship a God whom one cannot see, he says, meant that in Judaism, a sensory perception was given second place to what may be called an abstract idea, a triumph of intellectuality over sensuality. If people can worship what is not there, they can also reflect on what is not there, or in what is presented to them in symbolic and not immediate terms. So the mental labor of monotheism prepared the Jews, as it would eventually prepare others in the West, to achieve distinction in law, in mathematics, in science, and in literary art. It gave them an advantage in all activities that involved making an abstract model of experience, in words or numbers or lines, and working with the abstraction to achieve control over nature or to bring humane order to life. Freud calls this internalizing process an advance in intellectuality, and he credits it directly to religion. Skipping down then, the end of the article, the last paragraph, reads, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Freud were all at times able to recognize religion as being what Harold Bloom has wisely called it. Not the opium of the people, but the poetry of the people. They read scripture as though it were poetry, and they learned from it accordingly. They saw that even if someone does not believe in a transcendent God, religion can still be a source of inspiration and of practical wisdom about how to live in the world. To be sure, it often takes hard intellectual work to find that wisdom. Yet Freud's late life turn shows us that there is too much of enduring value in religion, even for non-believers, ever to think of abandoning it cold. 
So this argument is fascinating, and it is subtle, and it hurts in a way that the bombastic approaches of the Christopher Hitchens of the world does not. Right? The fiery anger of the new atheist movement, of these guys that come out and say, like, religion only causes bloodshed and does vile things to humanity, and it's holding us back from evolving and becoming the greatest species ever, and da-da-da-da-da. That, on the surface, feels like such an emotional argument that it's easy, at least for me personally, to kind of shrug it off, right? Like, you just look at it and you're like, okay, dude, you're mad about the Crusades, you're mad about the Spanish Inquisition, but I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and I don't like those things either, you know? So just lumping all of religion, all of belief into the context of atrocities doesn't hold much weight for me. But this technique or this idea of coming at it and saying, look, I don't believe in God, but I can see how this has helped society. I can see how believing in an abstraction has helped you expand your mind and become a poet and think beyond your temporal needs. And that's created a vibrancy in the arts and in just intellectual thinking because the more you think abstractly, the more you're able to problem-solve complex equations and complex thought. And so Freud coming around and not, you know, believing in God, but saying, look, this faith has done good for us or has been something we can't abandon, is tough for me. And all the while, when I come across these ideas, this idea of kind of the evolution of religion through history, or the necessity for religion in the evolution of mankind, whenever I come across that, there's a couple things that always stick out to me. One is the mysterious mountain of God. Right at the beginning of Exodus, when Moses flees from Egypt and he runs to the land of Midian, and he gets himself a Midianite wife, it says he's living right next to the mountain of God. And it kind of creates this idea that back in those days, there was this mountain, Mount Sinai, and God was like living there. And so it was a holy mountain and people stayed away from it and everyone around knew kind of that, all right, there's a big dude, God guy up there on that mountain and that's his realm. It makes me think of that and how puzzling that is. Because earlier accounts of God, you know, he's walking with Adam in the garden and he's speaking to Abram, not necessarily in this like physical, strictly temporal sense that like being a deity of a mountain seems to present. If you do a Google search for the evolution of religion or the history of religion, you'll probably find this infographic or this chart that's made the rounds through the internet in the last few years. And it's a really fascinating read. But essentially, it goes through history and it says, look, all religions start from this base of animism. And then they shoot out towards these different branches based on, you know, different continents and different cultures. But generally, the story of evolving religion is the same. You go from animism, which is like the idolization of food or that tree over there or water or specific things that help you live to polytheism. Obviously, that goes from, like, literal things that you can see and touch right in front of you to these gods that kind of represent those things that may be amorphous, you know? And then from polytheism to monotheism, and then from monotheism to atheism, or humanism, however you want to put that. That seems to be the general consensus of this chart, this pattern in history. And I think when I look at this chart, there's three different responses one can have, right? You can either look at that chart of the evolution of religion and say, that's nonsense. You can look at it and say, it's absolutely correct. Totally, I see the evolution. It's clear as day. History has proven this to be true. Or a third response is maybe just look at it and say, okay, there's some truth there. This is partially correct, but it's not telling the whole story. And while I want to be on the nonsense scale of looking at that chart and just writing it off, I at least find myself on the 
it's partially correct spectrum of responses. Because you look at it and you see now that at least outspoken atheism, there's more atheists in the world now, I believe, than ever before. At least that are vocal about it. And to a certain extent, that makes perfect sense to me, right? Like, 2,000 years ago, you see a bolt of lightning and you have no idea where that lightning came from or what causes lightning. And so it very well could be a god. It could be Zeus throwing down a lightning bolt because he's mad at somebody. I understand why a lack of scientific understanding would lead to a mysticism or a belief in magic. And if I want to turn up the dial on doubt in myself a little bit, I think about one of the oldest stories in the Bible. I think about Noah's Ark. And Noah's Ark, you know, it's maybe the best story to tell little kids because it's got lots of animals, it's got high adventure, and then it has this wonderful ending wherein God promises to never flood the earth again with a rainbow. And as an adult reading that, that's a little bit trickier than it was as a child because now I look at rainbows and I see a natural phenomena taking place. You know, say what you will about rainbows. It doesn't seem like God is physically orchestrating every rainbow to spontaneously burst onto the scene at the end of rain showers. No, there's a lot of science to explain why rainbows show up after rainstorms. I do not know that science very well because I am a poor weakling boy who doesn't understand science very well at all. But I believe the people that do understand it when they tell me that there's explanations for it. So then when I read Noah's Ark, especially if I read it in light of looking at this chart, I think, oh, I see kind of the animism aspect there in the rainbow thing. Like, it seems similar to a lot of those old creation myths you hear of, like, that explain how these two gods are fighting and then that's why we have stars or weird explanations like that, that use religious explanations for physical realities. So getting back to our prime question here, is religion inevitable? And even further than that, if we can track like a a very systematic evolution of cultural thought on God or goddesses or what have you, religion, if we can track cultural evolution of religion, does that undermine the God of the Bible? Does that undermine my faith? And there's a couple more things that kind of get under my skin when I read through the Bible. And one of those is that there are scant references to the afterlife in the Old Testament. Okay, there's a few that you can kind of find but they're oblique and they're few and far between. You really have to strain to pull those passages out. But then by the time the New Testament comes around, Jesus is on the scene and somewhere in the intertestamental time period between 400 BCE and CE, in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's an explosion of this afterlife conversation in the Jewish world. And there's apocryphal books that talk about it. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's coming into the scene in a rich environment that there's a lot of conversation about the next life in the atmosphere and eternal life and heaven and hell. That's there on the field. But if you're reading through the Bible, it just seems to like burst onto the scene from reading the end of the Old Testament to going to Matthew 1.1. Similarly, you're pretty hard-pressed to find demons as well in the Old Testament. You have various references to Satan and maybe the Nephilim, the sons of God. You've got a few references here and there. But then when Jesus is on the scene, when he's walking around Galilee and walking around Jerusalem and Judea, there seems like there's a demon behind every street corner. Exorcisms are happening left and right. Really strange that we go from like no exorcisms or almost no exorcisms in the Old Testament to a ton of exorcisms and demons floating inside people all over the place in the New Testament to nowadays walking around and yes, you hear stories about exorcisms, but it's not super self-evident all the time. So it appears like there's this evolution or this jump over time where you go from 
having a little information about God, and then all of a sudden you're gaining ground, and you're, and you're learning there's going to be a new heaven and new earth, there's going to be heaven, there's going to be hell, and there's also fallen angels, there's demons, and the mythology kind of grows and expands, and you have all this extra information over time. There's a part of me that groans at that, that struggles with that, that thinks, oh, maybe this is just an evolution happening. And then as I was contemplating this and preparing this episode, kind of a funny thing happened. I was going to have another example, and that was going to be the Jewish people's relationship to food, specifically meat in the Bible. And I was going to show how you start off in the Garden of Eden and Adam's a vegetarian, and then you go forth from that, and then all of a sudden by Moses' time, you can eat some animals, but not pigs, not some other animals. And then Peter, the Apostle Peter, is told by God, okay, now you can eat all things. And so I was going to be like, see, there's also kind of an evolution there. From no animals, slowly, to some animals, to all animals. But I totally blew it on that one. I didn't realize that after the ark, when the flood subsides and Noah and his family are ready to start you know, repopulating the earth, God tells Noah, you can eat all animals. Everything. And then it's only with Moses much later that that command to not do pork and other animals is, is instated. So... At least that doesn't line up as a consistent evolution. You've got a major bump in the road there. And so I would be chagrined at this point not to bring up the idea of dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism is a strange, broad topic. And it's a way to look at the Bible and exegete the Bible in a way that... I don't know how to sum this up well, because there's several ideas wrapped up in it. But for our purposes today, let's just say that it breaks up history into seven dispensations, seven allotments or revelations of how we interact with God over time. And this has always really fascinated me because, to a certain extent, there has to be dispensations, right? There has been times where mankind has interacted with God differently than at other times. For instance, Adam and Eve interacted with God differently than you and I interact with him. And they had a different set of rules. They didn't have to put Jesus in their place in order to receive eternal life. All they had to do was not eat, you know, <laughs> the forbidden fruit, and they could live forever and be happy in the Garden of Eden. That's not the same rules that we have today. So this conversation of dispensations interacts with this idea of evolving religion in an interesting way. Because it establishes, at least for me, a sense that God does different stuff in different time periods. And he asks, and this is going to sound maybe blasphemous to some of you out there, four different things from us at different time periods. That's not to say that God himself is changing, but our relationship to God is changing. Or at least changes at different points in human history. You know, whatever heaven will be, whatever the next life will be, I don't think it's going to be this whole system of there is sin and we need... Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for us anymore. You know, that's going to be done. And we're going to interact with God in a different way then. But because we've had these different dispensations, we've had these different anthems of how we interact with God, that allows for change over time. And I don't know. I don't know where I'm getting at anymore. I've, I've lost my focus here. But, <laughs> but my heart today is to just kind of bear with this idea of what does evolution, you know, cultural evolution, not talking about like macro evolution, but what does cultural evolution have to do and how does that interplay with our relationship to God? And why is it that when I look at that, you know, evolution of religions chart, I can't wholly, you know, shove it off. And there was an interesting thing I, I once read and I couldn't find the actual 
word-for-word quote, because I, to be honest, I couldn't even remember which book it was that I read this in, but it was a G.K. Chesterton book. Uh, and G.K. Chesterton's just this really fun guy. I mean, he's dead now, but he, at least in his writing, he's just, he's a joy to be around. You'd like him. You should hang out with him. Good guy. And from what I understand, he was like 300 pounds. So just big, jolly beast of a man writing jolly things and jolly books. But I read this one book of his, and he made a reference that in the old world, people worship demons. And when Rome defeated the Carthaginians, that was a necessary step in human development to allow for Jesus to come on the scene. Now, what he meant by this was that the Carthaginians were worshiping demons, wherein Rome was just worshiping false gods. And in Chesterton's eyes, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your idea here, Mr. Chesterton, but what I understood of it was that he's saying that even that evolution, away from the worship of demons, but towards a worship of just, you know, false things, was a necessary step to get a little bit closer to Jesus to allow for the conditions that when Jesus is actually on the earth, people are more acceptable to worship him and ready to embrace him. So take that for what you will. As I'm recording this, I'm looking at my thumb. And I remember thinking this as a high schooler, being in a natural science class and learning about evolution and thinking, yeah, my opposable thumb, I could see how it could be further up on my arm. I could see how that could evolve downwards to where it is now. And those apes do look a lot like us. And in all this, this idea of evolution and the dust Freud is throwing into my eyes. Freud's theory about Moses is a little suspect because... He, he establishes a lot of his stuff based on his psychology, not based on history or based on archaeology. For instance, his basis that Moses was an Egyptian and not a Jewish person was that fairy tales always talk about children from rich parents being taken away and adopted by poor people. Well, the story of Moses is that he was Jewish, but facing persecution, his family put baby Moses in a, in a little boat, I guess, down the Red Sea, and then it was picked up by Pharaoh's family, and Moses was raised as an Egyptian. So Freud threw out that whole thing just based on his psychoanalysis of fairy tales, that that story must be wrong because fairy tales are told the opposite way. Which, you know, that's a fine thing to say, but I don't know if you could base a whole historical theory based on that type of whimsical evidence. Anywho, in the face of all this, in the face of evolving religions and all the different pieces of history being flung at us. All I can do is shout like the man in the Gospel of Mark when he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is Dante Stack signing off. Peace be the journey.